0: Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care Podcast. Why does this matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We, as healthcare providers, must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care Podcast. Dr. Casey Grover, glad to have you back for another episode. Today's episode is a follow-up to episode 48, which was an interview with a young man in recovery. We'll be continuing our interview with this young man as he shares his personal story of substance use and recovery. A few quick notes before we start the interview. First, a brief heads up that there are a few adult words in this interview. And second, the young man, Aidan... That I am interviewing has some very strong opinions about law enforcement that he shares in this episode. Please realize that his opinions and perspectives about law enforcement do not represent my views or this podcast's views about law enforcement. However, this young man's interactions with law enforcement have played a huge role in his recovery. So I kept his opinions and views about law enforcement in this episode as it's a part of his recovery story. And with that, let's get started. All right. Well, Aiden, it is wonderful to get to speak to you again. I was just telling you I've Likewise. gotten so many compliments about the episode we recorded. Um, tell me how you've been doing.
1: I've been doing pretty well, actually. Um I have a job interview tomorrow. I'm also taking my permit test tomorrow. Tomorrow will be a pretty busy day, but yeah, I've just, just been occupying myself as much as I can. Just got to stay busy. That's all it really is.
0: Yeah. Well said. So I was thinking about, you know, maybe we want to pick up where we left off, excuse me. We want to pick up where we left off last time. We yeah. talked about your music. Um, Tell me about how music has been a part of your recovery and um kind of how music is a part of your daily life
1: well for me it's my outlet like um personally like i i do still struggle with depression and ptsd and music has been you know kind of it's kind of that one thing that i know like regardless of what i'm going through it'll always be there um you know and i mean for the longest time when i was in my addiction you know i kind of just let it go you let everything go that you genuinely value as a person when you're in your addiction but since i've gotten sober i've i've been dedicating all of my free time into just making the best quality music that i possibly can Um, i have a song coming out april 30th Um, so that'll be that'll be fun it's going on all platforms as as the last few songs have, that's my main priority currently is just to get it to as many streaming services as possible, so there's no limitations as to where you can listen to it. Um, but I mean, things have been going good. Um, the little shoe business as well is good, but you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna support me forever single handedly. So um, I've just been working on putting in as many applications as I can, so that I can, you know stay busy that's that's really the the main goal here is just to stay busy as much as i possibly can to keep my mind busy and to keep me from you know floating away into intrusive thoughts and you know i'm just coping in each is in as many positive ways as i can simultaneously that's that's my current memo i guess
0: yeah tell me you know i i I don't think I've ever mentioned this when I'm podcasting, mm-hmm. but, you know, sometimes getting an episode out or I'm behind or I make an error on an episode, I get a little stressed out. Yeah. Tell me, how do you deal with stress as you're trying to be a successful musician? And, you know, how it's, I just, I guess I was thinking if music is an, an outlet for you, what do you do mm-hmm. when that outlet is a source of stress?
1: Ooh, I mean, yeah, sometimes um, I deal with writer's block, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll work on a song for hours, and I'm mixing it. And I just, I just don't like it. Like, it's just not, it's not hitting me the way that I want it to. And yeah, kind of, I mean, I I could either let it ruin my day, or bounce back from it and just scrap the song, do what I got to do, and continue to work until I get, you know, to the until I get a project that is going the way that I want it to, nice and smooth, catchy. Just generally, it's it's not really about those things. To me, it's just about my lyrics being authentic. Lyricism, to me, is the biggest part about each of my songs. So, I mean, when when it just sounds, you know, like, like some Shakespeare English, it just doesn't really doesn't really hit me. Um I just prefer all my lyrics to come straight from the heart, you know, not be you know, cuz generally when I'm when I'm really in my zone, you know, I'll end up writing down an entire verse probably within 2 or 3 minutes. Um and it's all good stuff. Uh it's just that when I end up having writer's block and I'm sitting there for 30 minutes and I only end up getting, you know, eight bars down, it's just it's frustrating for sure because you know it's definitely a huge huge part of my life and um you know and it it is stressful because I like to have a schedule um I like to be able to release things often and you know as frequent as I can so that nobody is starving for more music um you know but it's it's just it can be a stressor as well but at the end of the day, I know that I'm doing it because I'm passionate about it. And the passion has never faded in any way. Um, you know, I've drifted off into other things during my career in music. But um, at the end of the day, I've always circled right back. And, it's be- and, you know, it's, it's one of the, the biggest motivators in my life.
0: Yeah, there's also a lot of substance use in the music industry oh, yeah. and among musicians. Um how how do you kind of reconcile that in your mind or are you ever kind of like on guard if you're going to go to an event or mm-hmm. you're recording with someone who's using? How do you how do you deal with that reconciling um, your love of music and then your history?
1: See, personally like I'm the I'm the leader and founder of the music group Death Reserves. And one thing that I've done to combat that is just I've I've made an official rule book um, and in regards to being frequent, being active. And rule number two is to uh, live a sober and healthy life to the best of your ability. Um, And basically, I mean, if if someone falls off the wagon, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, in the group. Um, But if they're not accepting help as an option and they're drifting away from music, they're drifting away from uh, the group in general, you know, that can be an instant termination penalty um, because you have to value music enough and value your place in the group enough to be able to prioritize it over some, something that's going to make you feel good for an hour or two and then get sick. And I just don't, I care about my members too much to let them live such a sick cycle because I know exactly where it's going to go.
0: You have to say that's, that's very insightful. Um, I, as you probably saw from the expression on my face, I was, I wasn't necessarily expecting that. How, how did the folks that you work with respond to kind of the, the, the code of conduct of your group?
1: Well, when a rule is implemented, you know, they're required to agree to, to such rule. Um, and I mean, lately, I've kind of felt like I'm the only one who, who truly cares about the music and, and, and creation. And I mean, honestly, if, if I'm going to be straight up, um, I kind of I kind of feel like restarting the group with the same rules in place obviously I don't mean restarting it I just mean I'm I'm very close to removing some members um just because they've been very careless and um you know it it hurts to to see that happen as well you, you know a very good friend of mine who is also a part of the group is currently struggling with a lot you know, and, you know, one of the hardest things that, you know, because I've never been on the outside perspective of addiction, um, but I am now. And one of the hardest things that I've noticed is just trying not to let someone's pain become your pain. You know, when you really care and, you know, would do anything for somebody and all of a sudden they're on such a, such a, just a bad path you know, and you're in a rational state of mind and they're in a compulsive state of mind, you know, from their perspective, you know, they, they have reasons for everything that they're doing, but from your perspective, they seem like excuses. Um, and it's, it's just, it's definitely difficult because all that I want for my, my good friend who I consider family is you know, for him to just get better and start making the right decisions that'll positively impact him because he deserves to live a, a healthy and happy life. But you know, addiction is, as I've said in the past, in the in the last episode, I addiction is a subconscious state of mind. It's it's an addict's nature to use. Once you once you explore that realm, it's really hard to get out of it
0: tell me how you as a person in recovery approach um a, a family friend or loved one who has an addiction is, is it triggering for you does it kind of strengthen your resolve in recovery how how do you approach that it's got to be a, a kind of an interesting spot to be in
1: yeah for sure um well i mean i do have a family member um an uncle who is an alcoholic he's also diabetic as well so If if anybody knows about diabetes, you know that alcohol and diabetes do not go well together. Right. Um. And recently, he almost just lost his leg. Um. Probably had the best outcome in a recent surgery that he possibly could have had. He got to keep his foot. Um. So, I mean, he. I mean, it's it's definitely a lot more difficult when addicts have been addicts for such a long time because in their mind, I'm alive, I'm happy with what I'm doing. So what I'm doing must be working, right? Like, no one's going to tell me that what I'm doing is, you know, wrong, that I'm sick. And this is a state of mind that I've developed over a period of time from doing a negative thing. Um, And even after even even someone who was only, you know, using for four, four and a half years, you know, the denial is just the hardest thing to get past Um, for the longest time, you know, overdose. I just want to go home and get high. You know, you're sick, right? I'm not sick. I just want to go home and get high because I don't know this and that. It's always you got to make when people are telling you that you have a problem, you will have a million excuses and rash and irrational, you know, things in your mind as to why you're doing what you're doing when you're in that state of mind, but it's just, it's not, it's, it's not rational to use a substance every time there's something negative going on in your life. The rational thing to do is to confront your demons and try to cope in a positive way. I mean, and that's not easy. Like in my opinion, I feel like almost for anybody like it It takes it takes a strong support system in order to be able to develop the tools to cope in a positive way to be able to cope without doing something negative that would harm you or harm your state of mind but it's definitely yeah it's definitely difficult because you know I don't I don't have all the answers for addicts but I do know, at least like if they were to take my advice and actually work on themselves like someone I'm speaking in the sense of me saying, hey, try this to somebody that I care about who is struggling. I know that if they took that advice and actually worked on it, it could make a positive impact on their health. but in order for an addict to get help they have to want to help themselves and that is the most difficult part when you're on the outside perspective
0: yeah let's let's unpack that a little bit tell me what do you think goes into the moment when people realize they're ready to start thinking about recovery
1: for me it was just my like finally being able to comprehend the amount of pain that i've caused to the people that i care about cuz when you're when you're in that You know, that that um, that cycle just constantly getting high, waking up, getting high, getting high, passing out, waking up, getting high, passing out, waking up, getting high. You know, you don't like there's just a blockage in your brain. It's like they just don't understand. They're not in pain. They just don't understand. And if they understood, they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't be so damn like concerned about me if they understood you know like that for me that's what it always was it was like that but when I finally got some sober time and and the first time that I really got like a good week without fent was the overdose where I had flatlined and just seeing seeing the look on my mom's face like she was petrified she didn't know how much time she had left with me You know, she knew as long as I was in this hospital, I was safe. And all she wanted for me was to go to rehab. And eventually I agreed, but I didn't want to. You know, you have to want that for yourself in order for it to actually work. But for me, the turning point was just after cycle and different cycles of just using and binging. Finally, getting out of jail and being out for less than a week. And relapsing on Fent, I kind of just knew, like, either this is going to happen for the rest of my life like this, and I'm going to spend, you know, years just being in and out of jail, relapsing, getting caught, and then going back to jail, or I can get better and finish my probation term and not have to deal with this shit again. And that's, that's really what it was for me. I mean, it's, it's always a different situation for each addict. I mean, it, sometimes it takes a lot less, but sometimes it can take even more, you know, it's just, it's definitely difficult to, you know, say you have a problem because addicts, they don't, they don't want to, I mean, who wants to admit that they're sick? Like, well said, like I, I never did. Like, I didn't want to you know, admit that everything that I was doing was hurting me and everybody around me and that I was sick. Like it just, it makes you feel like less of a person, but did we talk
0: about, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just, it, that's the only way. That's all I'm saying. Like, that's the only way to get better. You gotta, you gotta admit that to yourself, not just to other people around you, but you have to truly believe it in yourself. Like,
0: yeah, I was going to say I can't remember if we talked about this, but I watched an interview with the musician Macklemore, who mm-hmm. was saying addiction is the only disease that tries to convince you that you don't have a disease.
1: Yeah, agree. Just
0: curious as to how that how that resonates with you.
1: It's definitely true. I mean, I just for the longest time, I mean, I've had I've had several overdoses, and each time, I mean, I knew it sucked. But I did. I That was all I knew. I didn't know I was sick. I was just like, damn, next time I shouldn't take that much. It's just, you know, there's always some rational explanation as to why you're there, but why you're not sick. Like everybody else is telling you you're sick. But, you know, I just just wanted to go home and get high. And and this time when I go home, I'm not going to pop 12 pills. I'll pop, I don't know, eight, you know. Cause I overdose on 12. So that's, that's the problem. It's wow. taking too much. It's yeah. taking too much, you know, it's, I'm not sick though. Like, and it's not even me telling me I'm not sick. It's like, cause it's not like I'm, I'm not even thinking about, am I sick or not? You know, it's just as a, like, just like the, um, I'm trying to think of the word I said, um, uh, I don't, the, mm, Cause I'm the, ah, okay. It's okay. We'll, we'll come back this to this. Anxiety. It's a bit of social anxiety right now, kind of compiled with a, me trying to think of a word. I'm sorry.
0: All, all good. Let, let, let's come back to that. So when, was there like a, like a moment, like a specific moment where you felt like you were ready for re- recovery? Was it like a day? Was it a week? T- tell me just what that felt like.
1: I don't think I was ever ready for it. Like, you can't really prepare for it. Like. Mm being able to like no amount of preparation time can really prepare you for the amount of pain that you're going to go through during recovery it's so uncomfortable it's like being able like because you have to finally be able to view yourself as the perpetrator and that is the hardest thing to do as any person even not in not just as an addict to be able to spend time alone uh, completely isolated figuring out that all the people that are hurt it's because of what you've done and you know how having to take all that time you know to figure out a solution on how you can live life normally and you know not to say that there's any normal way to live life but the best way to live life is to be sober. Um, it'll spare you a lot of pain and and just a lot of things that you don't need to deal with. A lot of situations that you wouldn't be in if you weren't high, if you weren't fiending for something. You wouldn't like personally. I would have never gone to jail if I never took a drug. Like you think I, you think I'm in my sober mind. I'm thinking I want to go steal a car. I'm not. I'm definitely not you know in my sober mind i'm like i want to i want to get my license and then save well, up so i could buy my own car drive wherever i want you know not i'm not thinking oh let me I, I, it would be so easy to steal a car it, it's definitely not um and it'll get you in a lot of trouble and but when you're when you're high you just make compulsive decisions like that you think it's such a good idea and you're like whoo, that would be fun but it only takes one time for it to go wrong and you're facing consequences of an action that you made for an entire year, you know, and it's like, personally, I'm still on probation and, you know, I'm doing much better now, you know, uh, I'm, I'm never going to be a perfect person. Um, but, you know, I'm still facing the consequences of an action that I made back in July. And, you know, I, I, I I haven't even, I haven't tested positive one time on probation, like, it's just consequences like that will follow you around. And that's the thing that people don't really understand. It's like, oh, so what if I go to jail? I'll be in there for, huh, maybe two months tops. But then, But then you got, you know, you got probation. So it's like, it's going to last. It's going to last. Like, the justice system is set up in such a way where you they don't want you to reoffend so they're gonna make sure you don't you know and if you do you know it's gonna get just worse and worse on you but nonetheless yeah you
0: you talked to me about consequences talk to me about apologies did you feel like you had to make a lot of apologies what were those like did some go well
1: I didn't feel like I had to I just had to like in my like in my in myself and man, those are like the most emotional moments ever, you know, like, you know, apologizing to my mom for, you know, traumatizing her and making her think that all times of the day that her son might be dead when she opens the door into his room. And, you know, apologizing to my girl, you know, for always being high around her and, you know, just setting a bad example because and and like you know, making her go through so much isolation. Like, you know, I would be away a lot because I'd either be in rehab or jail. And, you know, she don't deserve to go through that. No one does. No one deserves to be with somebody who's, you know, constantly worried about something else or spending time somewhere that's not with you, you know, like, but that's one of the one of the biggest factors in my recovery is, you know, that I have a healthy relationship and that's taken a lot of work, but, you know, having a healthy relationship has definitely made a positive impact on my mental health as well. Do you feel like the apologies
0: were initially accepted kind of with a lot of skepticism, given the fact,
1: I mean, yeah, go ahead. My girl always knew, like, she always believed that I could like, you know, be the person I wanted to be with well, my mom though she's seen it you know she's she I've there been so many times probably probably a good hundred times where I've told her you know I'm done this time I and I'm gonna be better you know tell her sorry because you know I'm sober and I don't have it at that moment but you know and then I'll be like you know uh I'm you know I'm out of money uh I want to. I want to take my girl out to dinner. I would say. I would. This would be one of my biggest fucking excuses. And I'm sorry for my vulgar language, but this, like, I would always say, like, um, let me get $20, dollars. I'm gonna take Jet City to 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 El Cordero, you know, and and then I go out and cop. It's like, who who does that? Like, that's so messed up. I'll just like, when I look at, when I just think about the things that I've done in the past, like I have a lot of hatred for that person and, you know, I can never let them back into my life. So, you know, I, I have to, I have to continue in recovery because that person, that person will ruin everything that I have going for me. And I know that.
0: Well, to, to, I want to pick up on that. So you said that person, how, how do you mentally think about the person that, you think of when you were using and the person that you're being now and working to improve, how do you think about that in your mind and and how does that factor into your mindset and recovery?
1: Well, the using version of me is just a self-sabotaging demon. You know, it's everything that is good. It dislikes, you know, if my, if my family is caring for me and they don't want me to use something well they don't know what they're talking about and therefore I'm gonna I'm gonna sneak out tonight and I'm not gonna come back for two days you know just because they're gonna tell me that I'm sick and I'm not you know I'm making bad decisions so I'm gonna leave and you know make them think they're gonna lose me and you it's just it's, it's just I've done things that I don't understand I like in my current rational state of mind, I just do not understand half of the things I did when I was in my addiction and half of them, I really don't even remember doing them, but she'll, you know, my mom will tell me that I did like the night where I got arrested. Apparently I was like straight up cussing her out on the phone. I don't remember that, Mm. but I, but I still did it. And like, I just, I don't understand how, I just don't understand how that was even like me, like, because it's not me, like, it's not, it's not the me that, uh, it's just, it's difficult to come to terms with my past, because there's a lot of things that I've done, said, and, you know, just, and there's, you know, there's little things about me currently that, you know, kind of, like, scare me, like, you know, like, sometimes, you know, if I, if I lie about anything, even if it's a little thing, I, I I kind of just freak out about it because you know that's just a that's the behavior that the addict version of me used to have and I'm not a liar like I'm not like I'm a very honest person when I'm like in my sober mind the sober me which is which I consider to be the real me you know is is a reliable communicative and responsible person who you know is not like it's very respectful and you know most of the time I'm very calm and well centered and I can articulate myself well but it's just when I'm in my addiction it's just everything just goes flying out the window like
0: so I was thinking about as as you were you were talking you know as a physician I still lose sleep over mistakes I've made as a doctor. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think about, you know, that I can think of patients, their faces, the room I was in, in the ER. How do you deal with the negative emotion of regret? Um, And I'm just curious, how do you ever have times where their regret's really intense, where there are times where it's not as intense and just kind of how you deal with that?
1: I mean, honestly i just i don't know that's why i occupy occupy myself so much try to stay busy as, as much as i can because i don't know i'm still i still have a lot of work to do um especially on my mental health and you know regretting the past is like you know that's like my biggest demon um a lot of times you know i just think about something that i've done you know and then dwell on it and before you know it i'm you know I'm just like, man, I, this world would be so much better off without somebody like me in it, you know? So I just, that's why I have outlets. That's why I have positive, that's why I have coping skills. Cause you know, if I just, if I just sit and think about all my regrets all day, like either I'm going to use or, you know, I'm going to harm myself and that's, that's the truth of it. Um, so, you know, I have to, I have to, use positive skills so that I can refrain from negative behaviors.
0: Yeah. I mean, would you consider almost that, that a craving to use or it's more that you're triggered to use, or it's just kind of such negative emotions that I really don't
1: even know. Okay. It's just, it's everything, I guess. Honestly, it's just everything piled up into, into just one, one shitty emotion um and it's just I don't know sometimes my cravings are like super intense and I'm like how am I supposed to live the rest of my life without this but just knowing everything that I've done like I I can't continue doing that for not even for a day man like you know I just can't I can't like it's it's too much pain for me, and it's way too much pain for, for my loved ones, you know? I can't put my mom through that, you know?
0: Yeah. So I was in clinic this week, and I have a couple of patients, and we were talking about cravings. And from a medical standpoint, you know, what we know about cravings is they are very intense. Oh
1: yeah. And
0: at the same time, they are relatively brief, or they, at least they they can be very mm-hmm. they can be relatively brief. And I've often counseled my patients to come up with a plan for when they get um, a craving. You know, mm-hmm. my my personal way to deal with negative emotions is to exercise. And yeah. now granted, I, when I'm in the ER, I have to kind of take that negative emotion, defer it a number of hours until I can have time to exercise. But I'm curious as to what you've learned is kind of your best way of dealing with these intense craving emotions.
1: Um, I mean, I go for, I'll go for like a walk around the block um, because then I know that I'm freely choosing to be sober, mm. you know, cause when I go outside, you know, I could use um, most definitely, you know, I, I have the freedom to do so whenever I, whenever I want to, but. I know that like I like to go get fresh air, go around the block, because I know that I have enough self-control to just go around the block. And that that wasn't a thing before. When I was in my addiction, I'd say I'm going for a walk, go down the street, call up the plug, get whatever I needed in the same area that I'm walking right now. And knowing that I can just control myself, go around the block, come back home and not have a substance in my pocket That's that makes me feel like I'm doing this for a reason, you know, and I'm and I'm actually doing it because I want to, you know, because I mean, sometimes when I get in my thoughts, I'm wondering, like, you know, sometimes I think, like, am I doing this because, you know, I want to or because I have to to keep my freedom. But there are certain things that I do throughout the day that kind of reassure me that I'm doing this for myself.
0: When you say your freedom, are you referring to your freedom from addiction, from law from enforcement, addiction and or law. both?
1: I'm more so mean law enforcement. Okay, though. yeah.
0: I was just curious. I was thinking about you know when you know I have a colleague and um, mm-hmm. we we speak to students about addiction. In fact, I was at a high school today, yeah. and you know she tends to try to present to students that a lot of what addiction is. Is losing the ability to make your own choices. And so yep. when I heard you say freedom, I, I just it it stuck in my mind of it's 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 two freedoms. It's yeah. the freedom to say, what do I want to do tonight? Yeah. rather than I, I need to get my my substance. Mm-hmm. But also to your point, having had contact with with law enforcement, physical mm-hmm. freedom as well.
1: Which is definitely something I don't want. I, I don't wish on nobody. You're not even my worst enemy. And I. Phew, there's some I mean, that's another thing I struggle with, you know, is coming to terms with, you know, the things because I, I used to be, you know, I was not affiliated with gangs, but I was I was surrounding myself with bad people who were involved in gangs. And, you know, I ended up getting myself into a lot of things doing other people's business, you know, that didn't mean anything to me. But you know, I wanted, I, I more than I wanted respect. I wanted money, and you know, whatever made me money, I could get whatever I wanted. But, um, and would you mind repeating the the actual question? Because I, I remember. No, I was
0: it, it was just more. Just I was kind of thinking aloud as we kind of shared our ideas back and forth of just this idea mm-hmm. of. Freedom to make your own choices yeah. and addiction takes that away from you, you got, but also yeah. the the physical freedom with law enforcement. And when I heard you say freedom, I think you, 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 you were referencing physically not being incarcerated, Yeah. but I also just wanted to see what it, what it felt like to talk about your own freedom to say, I get to do what I want today, rather than saying, I, I need to get to my dealer. Cause otherwise I, I'm yeah. not going to have any.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's i mean that's something i never thought i would even have but losing losing your physical freedom definitely will it'll change your perspective on everything you were doing because i mean if you're in jail it wasn't working Mm -hmm. um and that's all i would ever think about is just like wow my ways really ain't working like like that's what it took for me is to like be sitting in a cell you know 18 hours a day uh sleeping with the damn light on you know like that's the worst thing is the light is glaring in your face while you're trying to sleep um you know uh cockroaches and spiders in my cell uh dirty toilet you know with tag all with tags all over it you know people tagging up the toilet right even the inside of the toilet was tagged up it's like man you reached your hand in there to put del rio it's like okay but nonetheless, it's, it's just it don't like some of the things that it's just it's living conditions that it, the minimal, you know, it's the minimal living conditions for a human being. You know, whatever whatever a human being's minimum uh, legal living condition is, that is what they will give you. Uh, they will give you the minimum amount of food that a human being needs. They'll give you the minimum amount of free time, uh, recreational time that a human being needs uh with american rights you know and yeah <laughs> just, all, I- I could, all i could tell you is if is if you're in your addiction you will be there eventually jails institutions and death is the is where addiction leads so yeah it sounds like funny games when you hear about it because everybody you know they glorify being in jail because they want you know they're they're cool because now they got an ankle bracelet on but it ain't going to be cool when you're in that cell all alone. Do you feel like the experience traumatized you in some way? Absolutely. Yeah. How,
0: how do you, how do you deal with that? Or do you ever and get
1: what really traumatized me was getting out of rehab. And within two weeks I ended up getting incarcerated again because my medication makes me test positive because my medication, colegaline has a metabolite of methamphetamine in it. And I, we were wreck we were trying to my dad was trying to reckon with the officers please he's on like he's on medications please just check his file and you know they just wanted to be right like that's all it was like they were just fighting to be right and that it was just it was it was awful you know thought I was going to spend my Christmas in there um and you know <laughs> my mom she would send email you know with uh with a um um What's the word? Um, Like a, I guess, like a, I don't know what the word, like, like wiki. Like a
0: clarification or some research? Like
1: an article. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. An article, you know, about my medication and how it can make you test positive for methamphetamine. She sent, she would send several emails and, you know, when I beat the case, you know, probation was kissing her ass and mine. And saying, oh, it was that email you sent. Well, even after she sent those emails, they wrote a statement saying my parents were bad parents and that they were going to keep me in a group home for six months because they couldn't keep me away from drugs. And apparently that was a better environment than my home that they have never stepped foot in. I hate I have I have hatred for probation here. They don't do things right. If you come to Hollister, California and you end up getting legal consequences, you're in the you're going to be dealing with some of the worst people you'll ever meet. I swear they'll take advantage of you every opportunity they get.
0: Yeah, you actually inspired me. Um, I'm going to put together an episode on the podcast on false mm-hmm. positive urine drug screens. Good. Um, just because I, I know at our hospital, um, you know, we as healthcare providers look at the, the urine drug screen. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, it, it says it's positive for you know math. I, I guess the person's using math, and yeah. um, I actually have a little note, um, like a note app, where I keep kind of little medical facts mm-hmm. that I need to remember. And I actually have one that lists all the false positives and negatives yeah. if you're in drug screens. But I don't Doesn't know either. how well it's been I studied. Or thing. yeah, actually, so I found an article. I'm going to do it a, as an episode, and and probably probably in the early summer. Of, of just mm-hmm. being aware of that fact, I'll never forget. Yeah. I was a medical student in um, on labor and delivery, mm-hmm. and there was a woman who had a false positive. Well, she had a, a urine drug screen that was positive for a, a drug, mm-hmm. and she. I just. I, I and the, the staff was all talking, and they were going to take away her baby. And mm-hmm. I, I just asked the, yeah. the question, like, "Hey, I'm just the med student, but this lady doesn't have any substance use history. Is there any possibility that this is a false positive?" And thank goodness, you know, I, I'm mm-hmm. amazed they listened to the medical student, but we actually were able to do some confirmatory testing and it was negative. It was yeah. actually, um, I think it was like an ibuprofen tablet she had taken that was mm-hmm. the culprit. But I really wanted to, you know, take that fact and just how yes. that really made a huge impact on your life and and really kind of unpacked what we know about it medically. Mm-hmm. You know, I could only find one paper. So I, I certainly yeah. think there needs to be yeah. a lot more research on that.
1: Yeah. And, and my, my positive test, it wasn't a false positive either. It was a positive, like it was a straight positive. Like there was nothing indicating that it was a false positive at all. And they had my lab sample. My lawyer basically just told the, the, uh, I I don't know what you want to call it. Basically the lead, like the, the top of probation, whatever the the, the role, bureau the chief role or something. Role. Yeah. Yeah. Who whoever is the defense attorney during a probation case. Um I don't believe defense, the prosecution, because the the prosecution is in a probation case is um one of the um I don't know what the word is. I because I'm just kind of lost in of these kinds of words when it <laughs> matters. But um basically one of the leaders i guess you would say um i'm i wish i could you know think of the right word on the spot but unfortunately that's not one of my best qualities but um, all good
0: it's more about the experience it's more yeah. about the the, the but nonetheless yeah.
1: yeah i apologize cutting you off uh but yeah my my lawyer was basically like either you can call the lab or i'm gonna call the lab yeah i remember and, you saying that yeah and and ask if uh methamphetamine or if there's a metabolite of methamphetamine in selegiline that made him test positive. And she's like, well, I'll call the lab. And of course, as I had known, there was no meth in my system because I think I would know if I took some meth.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's hard as, as healthcare providers. I mean, cause you know, uh, when you, yeah. when, I mean, I worked last night, I mean, someone has mm-hmm. a urine drug screen and yeah. it, it really just says positive or negative for each of the substances. There's really mm-hmm. no way to know um, that something's a false positive or not. And exactly. I think one of the things I really struggle with as a healthcare provider is I get lied to. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. next person that's, that's being honest with me, I sometimes have to say, you know, sir, I just need to let you know, I have to verify. I'm not saying you're a liar, but patients lie to me and I've tried to do it in a respectful way. A lot of
1: people on probation.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, law enforcement gets the same experience that people may be dishonest. And for every person who says I didn't do math, there's a certain percentage that may have done it. So I think it's hard mm-hmm. in both law enforcement and in medicine to really kind of reconcile that. I think respect is the foundation for me of the interaction yeah. is to say, you know, sir, I just, I, I, you know, like I actually, one of my patients this week um, came into the office and I was helping her with getting off fentanyl mm-hmm. and uh her urine drug screen we sent and she had a lot of substances in it and I said you know yeah. I just need to let you know we got to go through your urine drug screen I don't I, I you're not in trouble based on what's in the results but mm-hmm. we got to go through it. And you know, yeah. we had a really nice conversation. She was positive for meth. And I, I talked to her about it. Mm-hmm. And this drug screen was actually much more advanced. It was a quantitative, meaning yeah. it gave me the exact amounts, yeah, rather so than like just yes, no. Yeah, as well. yeah, it was a, it's, a, it's a higher quality one. And, mm-hmm. you know, and she was just, you know, thank you, doctor. I appreciate you not firing me because I made a bad decision. Yeah. And I was like, no, I got you. I mean, you're an older person. I don't want you using meth. It's really not good for you at the age you're at. And I think mm-hmm. I really, that, that conversation we had in the last episode about respect, you know, yeah. with healthcare providers and patients is just so important. Um, yeah. and, and that's really stuck with me. And and I'm I'm glad we can talk about the urine drug screens because, you know, I, I remember when I first got to my job, Mm -hmm. I got sign out on a patient, meaning my colleague was finishing his shift and I was taken over. And I watched him get in this kid's face of like, we're not going to find anything in the urine drug screen, are we?
1: Yeah. And I
0: I remember (laughs) just being like, how does that person – T- take that you know i know it just it, it really and I, I remember it very well it's just that episode really kind of cemented in my mind that mm-hmm. kind of the finger wagging yeah just it it doesn't work
1: it's very common too yeah I mean, when i first got on probation you know one of my first tests one of the po's he was like I, I tested clean and you know before he before he let me go he was like are you taking drugs aiden and i'm like no I'm not I mean I think you can check the results and find out but you know for me one of the things that just bothered me it wasn't necessarily even being incarcerated from the urine test but it was the fact that they broke their own policy because you're not supposed to lock someone up based off of a p cup Mm -hmm. in probation the policy states that when someone tests positive you're supposed to offer them rehabilitation before incarceration Mm -hmm. um yeah. So that was one of the frustrating things is that they broke their own policies and got away with it and kept their job. Um, you know, still works there to this day. And, but nonetheless, a couple of weeks after, um, you know, cause I take Suboxone for, um, that's, that's one of the medications that I'm on mm-hmm. as well. Um, and you know, so in in order to stay on suboxone you have to submit your analysis tests here and there yes um so my first one when i had gotten back from jail of course i tested positive for meth but they were claiming oh our our urine test is very reliable like there cannot be any mistakes and it's like well there was and if i'm telling you there was and it and it was just kind of mind baffling because it was the same doctor that my mom was communicating with about what had happened to me um, in regards to me getting locked up for that situation. It's the same doctor claiming that the urine test, you know, is is so reliable that there could not have possibly been a mistake. It was just, it was a funny situation because, you know, after a week of him reviewing and literally stopping me cold turkey on my suboxone um he sends her an email because the lab had gotten back to him and he's apologizing because wouldn't you know it there wasn't actually meth in my system you know it's interesting you know no,
0: i i'm and I, and I know this i can tell from your voice and and your, you know you're kind of the way you describe it, you know, there's still a lot of kind of raw emotion about this, but uh, most recently there's actually been a recommendation by professional medical societies, meaning like, you know, the national society of doctors that either treat addiction or, or like addiction psychiatry, there have been Mm -hmm. some national recommendations that when your patient has another drug, on their urine drug screen, yeah. you do not stop their treatment. And mm-hmm. and I think that's hard because traditionally we were taught, you know, Hey, if your patient's doing the wrong thing, you mm-hmm. cut them off, you know, they yeah. they made the mistake, their fault, they got to own it. But all yeah. that did was really worsen people's addictions. Yeah. They, they had nowhere to go. Older, they, so
1: he probably got his training back when as well. Well, but, I,
0: Well, that's also, I think, I think um, perspectives are changing. I mean, even in in Mm -hmm. my career, I've seen the, we cut you off if you have an abnormal urine drug screen to now we treat the patient regardless. Um, So I think, you know, perspectives are changing. I mean, when I started in medicine, everybody got at least 30 Norco or -hmm. 30 Vicodin for every injury. I, I
1: know. It's just...
0: It, medicine takes time to change, but I, I wanted to give you some hope that in the future, I think, you know, the perspectives of physicians are changing, particularly yeah. in the world of addiction to say, hey, if we find something in the urine drug screen, number one, let's make sure it's accurate. And number two, that's a cult that the patient needs more help.
1: Yeah. And I am definitely very blessed to be able to at least have any part at all in, you know, uh, you know, just getting this information out of healthcare providers you know that does definitely you know make me feel uh accomplished in a sense you know um because i mean all these things are real you know
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, it's obvious, it's a a little tough for me and I have a lot of friends in law enforcement and, and as a physician doing a lot of prevention work, I interact with law enforcement. So, you know, it's a little hard to hear your experience with probation because I have friends and have trained officers, probation officers that use Narcan, but by the same token, I think we also have to recognize that it's your experience and that's has contributed to who you are. And, um, just as much as, you know, your experience with that one nurse in the intensive care unit, um, you know, doesn't mean you're all bad. Correct. Um, I I wanted to, you know, kind of, kind of cycle back to, to something that, you know, you had talked about is just kind of how dark that time that you had in, in, in being incarcerated was Mm -hmm. when you look back on your whole journey, what was the darkest point?
1: Um, I mean, honestly, it was probably, you know, being incarcerated. Um, I would have to say just because there were I mean, there were several overdoses that were nearly fatal. And it became kind of a regular thing to just continue to use after I almost died. So that that kind of, you know, that was definitely a very dark time as well. Um, But it became normalized to me. Uh, but being losing my freedom spending so much time just alone in my head and you know everything that I had there you know it was it was a privilege you know it was a privilege to be able to get out of my cell it was a a privilege to be able to do school there it was a privilege to eat um you know it was a privilege to have recreational time um you know, and those are just I mean, you you take a lot of, you know, qualities of life for granted as as a as a human. Uh, I, I think that's just a normal human thing to do, because, you know, no matter how much a person has, generally, we aren't satisfied. Um, but when you are given the minimum living conditions that a human can get legally, you kind of realize how good it is out here being able to live in in your home, be able to sleep in your bed and open the pantry and and eat a snack whenever you want and actually choose what you want to eat, choose what you want to drink, choose if you want to leave the house or not, go for a drive, go for a walk, go to the park, hang out with friends. You cannot do that when you're incarcerated. Those are things that even the tiniest little thing, being able to give your mom a hug, you know, to give someone that you love affection, that is all taken from you when you're incarcerated so every tiny little thing gets to your head because you are realizing how helpless you are and and the time the time drags a month might fly by while you're out here and you're occupying yourself but no matter what you do in there it is a drag and it is incredibly hard to sleep when you're sleeping on a one inch mattress that is leather and then it's just concrete, no spring. You don't get it. You don't get a mattress and a spring and then a bed post, you get a mattress and then concrete. That is it.
0: So, so let me ask. So I've heard so much about how difficult it is and unpleasant it is to be incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Has that been a motivating factor more than you would have expected in your recovery? Just the not wanting definitely. to go back there. Yeah.
1: And and I know that even when I'm off probation, jail will always be there. Like jail will always be there for me if I ever, you know, mess up as bad as I did before. So it's not like I get off probation and I can do whatever I want. And, you know, I know very well that if I were to get off probation and then begin to use again, that most definitely I will end up right back where I was Mm -hmm. before.
0: Now, now, this is, I'm going to ask you a funny question because I know mm-hmm. you've been very clear your experiences with law enforcement. You have a, a very negative interaction with law enforcement. Yeah. Now, if you had to say, if overall, and, and I realize you've had some very dark times being incarcerated, would you say that overall the experience looking back at what you've been through, did mm-hmm. being incarcerated help you move forward?
1: Yes, it did. Okay. It was probably the number one motivating factor in me getting clean, um, aside from, you know, my support system. Um, And I also want to say, you know, while I've had bad experience with cops and probation officers, not every one of them is bad. I've met good people that are in that line of work as well. My current probation officer, who I just switched to a few weeks ago, uh, when I reported to probation on Monday, she told me that I don't have to test until the 22nd. Which is our next monthly meeting. So she's giving me the trust to, you know, be able to test myself, you know, and make the right decision, even when nobody's watching, you know. Um, And it's not easy to get that amount of trust when you're a person who's on probation. Um, Generally, most officers are by the book. And, you know, I would have been testing every single week if I was on my, if I was still with my previous officer until August 10th. But, I've been given, you know, a little bubble of freedom and, you know, it feels good to be able to, you know, remember what it was like to, to not be a person who's just on probation. Cause there are definitely a lot of negative factors that come with it. It's much harder to get a job. Um, I'm oh, much, yeah. I'm less respected by, most general people, I mean, when I had my ankle monitor, going out in public, I, everybody stared at me like, I just like, what the hell? Like What is wrong with you? It's like, well, a lot, but you know, it, it doesn't change the fact that I'm a human. Totally. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, there are good people in law enforcement and probation. It's just this current, this specific department is quite terrible. There are still good people there but it's just the way that they do things it is not you know it, it's they don't follow their policies but i was my life was saved by a cop so you know i do have respect for law enforcement regardless of you know my views on the bad apples you know i know that no matter like everywhere you know in any kind of line of work really there there are going to be people who are negative Nancy's, but they're, there are good people in every line of work, I believe. Yeah,
0: well, well said. When you when you look ahead at where you're going, um, what what's something that maybe when you were in your addiction or you were incarcerated, what's something that you find surprising about where you are now, or maybe that you didn't expect? Um, it seems like kind of doors are opening and kind of you're making progress. What's something that you found that you didn't think? necessarily or or you weren't expecting.
1: Well, I was not ne- I never thought I'd be on the road to graduate. I'm going to graduate early as well. So Congrats. Yeah, and uh you know getting my, you know, permit and um you know uh you know being being you know getting a job, you know, all that kind of stuff, just being able to live as an independent person, making my own decisions and being responsible on my own without, you know, somebody having to tell me to do something. I never thought, I never thought I'd be in this current position where, you know, I'm choosing to do the right thing every day. And, you know, it's actually having a positive impact on me. Um, That's... Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Oh no, that's just one of the things that definitely surprises me about where I'm at now.
0: What uh, what, are your, what are your kind of short-term goals? What are your long-term goals?
1: short term get a job get my license long term move out be on my own and uh just learn learn to be able to financially support myself and be responsible i mean i'm responsible with money as it is but you know like you know money management is definitely one of the 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 biggest things that an adult has to learn to do is be able to manage their money properly to be able to pay their bills pay you know payment like car payments uh subscriptions if that's a part of you know your your monthly routine but nonetheless money management is definitely one of the biggest things that um i'm gonna have to continue to improve on you know
0: I have to say it's so cool to as I reflect back on our, our time together this evening. You know, we've talked about some pretty dark stuff, being yeah. incarcerated, overdoses, and we we're talking about financial planning now. I mean, yeah, that I know, is right? that is such a good direction to go in.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. It's it's definitely good to be in a position where I'm not, you know, I'm like I I, I know I'll make it to my birthday. You know, last year, I didn't even think I would, I would have made it, I mean, I didn't even think I would live to where I'm at right now, like honestly, I thought I would have been dead before I even turned 17, but you know, here I am, I got, you know, I, I'm like what, four months away from my birthday, I'm gonna be 18 and be an adult, you know, and you know, uh, it's just, yeah, it's definitely crazy, uh, all the stuff that I've been through and just where I'm at now, it's, it. It boggles my mind still, you know, and even just hearing like when I mean, it's not like an everyday thing, but, you know, here and then, like when I accomplish a milestone, hearing someone say I'm proud of you, it's like back then there was nothing to be proud of. But, you know, the, the fact that there is something to be proud of is is good, you know.
0: Absolutely. So uh, we're getting pretty close to the hour, Mark, and that's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty long in the podcast world. Yeah, yeah. Just any, any final thoughts, any final reflections, any, any kind of positive messages you want to send out to the healthcare providers that are listening?
1: Well, I mean, for, for the healthcare providers, just continue to work with compassion on patients who are struggling with addiction. And for anybody who is currently um, in recovery, the the number one thing that I can tell you is when it comes to the past, don't dwell on the past. It's not gonna bring you any. It's not gonna bring you anything positive. But do not forget where those negative actions led you. Um, that's my best advice to anyone who's in recovery. Um, is just don't dwell on the past. Not gonna bring you. Not gonna bring you nothing good. But just don't forget. That's, that's really it. Don't forget.
0: Yeah. I love that. All right. Aiden, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation as always. It's been great to, uh, to kind of hear your perspectives and, and, and really kind of learn. And, and I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, most healthcare providers, um, may not have a lived experience with addiction. I think it's probably underreported just because of the shame and stigma around addiction, but it's just to hear kind of the experiences, the, what what motivates you, how you look back, how you look forward. I just want to thank you for helping kind of us as healthcare providers better understand addiction.
1: Of course, anytime.
0: Absolutely. All right. And that is the end of the interview and the end of this episode. Once again, another great interview with Aiden. And from a healthcare provider's perspective, I find that hearing patient perspectives are so helpful and insightful. Please consider sharing this podcast with a colleague. And thank you to those of you who have given me reviews on your podcast app. Thank you for listening. And thanks for what you do. And don't forget Treating substance use disorders saves lives.